Cheers. In um, the non-dualist understanding, we don't talk about spirits or anything like that. No. It's not. They, they would just be seen as being an object just like anything else. Yeah. And if you're talking about objects, then you're in duality. But if your being is non-dualistic, then there's no room for separate things. That's an interesting one because there is something within, like the way that the Buddha got his enlightenment. He had to know everything. He had to be because he was going to be the teacher of mm. this. So he had to know and understand all of this stuff. And, you know, so he could then teach to every single being, mm. all levels, right up to the day, you know, the Brahma beings down to the hell. He had to be able to converse. And, and that's why he got such a high within Buddhist meditation might be within Indian uh, Tantra Hinduism mm. Jhonic states mm. which are deep absorptions in meditations yeah and he did go to the highest possible within that before there's no consciousness but it's not that he knew that he was going to be a teacher, it's just that's what happened, is it? So there's an attain, there's um, sorry, an aspiration, and he would have taken this uh, in front of the Buddha before him. So Buddha Gautama, who is our dispensation at the moment, actually it's just changing into Maitreyas. We're <laughs> into that, is it? So the Buddha before Gautama, uh, he would have taken his... Uh, Usually that's how it's done. He would have taken his aspiration and said in front of that Buddha, I would like to be Buddha. Oh. Now Buddha is somebody who, yeah, has to go through, obviously there's eons and eons of, of practice to fine tune and to learn all the things that's necessary to be able to teach the Dharma on such a level that you can be with everybody and everything can get this across. Because even though there's all the different myriad forms, there are those that aren't awake, right? So whether you, how you perceive them or whatever, they're not recognizing that thing. So they need to be showing that thing in the purest way they can. Yeah, but it's not necessary for the average person if they want to gain understanding to know about all the different aspects of Buddhism, for instance. No, that would be a Buddha's... Like, so what, what he found was the yeah, Nibbana, the awakened state, and that was what he was teaching. That's what he, would, he was asked to show others the liberation of suffering suffering. The 
Brom being who was watching him came down and asked him to do this and he said uh, well it's, it's hard yeah. and he asked him three times and he said okay because there were those with little dust in their eyes he remembered the five aesthetics who he lived with in the forest which you may not know the story of no. but <laughs> there's these dudes who he's hanging out with and he didn't forget them and he went back because they had little dust in their eyes and he was able to teach them and they when they were awakened within that time space very short time space that started the wheel of, of Dharma the teaching so that he could teach somebody else could get it and they could realise they were hmm. and that's a pivotal point within the whole thing that he was then recognising he's the teacher but the person who like myself if I didn't say I want to be the next Buddha I just want to get enlightened mm. I just want to stop this suffering yeah you know get beyond this suffering then yeah there's an easier way to do it following his steps that he laid out because he you know, saw it and within this non-duality that's a an angle of the path up the mountain mm so that you break down all this sense of self to perceive things as they truly are. Yeah. What I like about the non-dual approach is that there's no there's no extra bits. There's yeah. A, there's no um, <clears throat> no ritual or anything like that. There's mm. no uh, you don't have to know anything. All you all you have to do is look in yourself. Yeah, so there's a, there's a practice that you do, you follow, or else you would just be, you wouldn't have the recognition to look there. Mm. So this is a, a systematic approach to finding out what's going on. Mm. Essentially, that it is just all things coming to be and passing away. But it's not just that. Yeah. So the dry approach can give you a dryness, and then you have the other aspect of it which you were saying was a heart yeah it does feel necessary to once you've gained some sort of understanding to try and reframe it within yourself from the complementary side let's say <laughs> yeah mm. well at least that's my experience mm. because that's the dismantling aspect to the passionate which is the certain practices of the East. Um, this thing of stripping it all back and get very like, oh my God, there isn't, hang on a minute, all this investment I've put in this me. Yeah. What, there isn't? It's completely. So a step by step, as my teacher would say, it's like going up some flight of stairs you take a step and it can be it can be a bit like, oh God, I'm more, like, if anyone's to push you at that point, you might fall over. Mm. It's very unstable. And then you bring up the other foot and then you, ah, right. There's like this element where you're taking a step on the Vipassana and it's going, <laughs> blowing you all over the place. You could just fall over at any point. But then the Samata gives you the grounding, like, ah, okay. What are these two words you're using? Which ones? <laughs> Vipassana and Samatha. Yeah. So these are the two branches within Buddhist meditation. 
the, the, the path to liberation. And what do they, what do they represent in these words? So Vipassana is insight. So this would be like you were talking about the approach within non-dual, yeah. where you're, it's very dry. That's the knowledge aspect, yeah. You're smashing it to bits, any idea of self. Mm. It's all just these momentary arising of phenomena. And then there's the samatha, which is a focus concentration. So usually it's within a really serene, calm environment, calm yeah. abiding, so you can settle the heart. Because what will come out of, of it depends how much work you've done with the heart, like you were saying, that you can take that. It's not so much of a shudder when you dismantle that idea of yourself. But the majority would get severely dismantled within that. Uh, yeah, taking it all apart that way. So there's this focus on concentrating the mind's not too disturbed. Yeah. And it's that thing of reducing that disturbance of the mind, which is essentially hot, calmer, calmer, and then you turn that focus into the insight and you see the natural reality of there is no self. Mm. Okay. Yeah, we don't really talk about concentration either so much. It's more to do with the insight part. Yeah. And then you just repeatedly are, well, once you've had an in, the insight, you're pretty much connected with that and you just compare all the things that appear to you to that, if you know what I'm saying. All the objects, all the feelings, sensations and uh, things that you... You're feeling them. Yeah, and the, all the objects that you see, all of those things, the practice then is to compare all of those to the being that you saw yourself to be. Yeah. And then feeling your way from one to the other and how how one thing is connected to another. The objective world, that's one that is quite a stumbling block, it seems, for a lot of people. How do you, how, how do you mean? Well, through the senses, mm. they uh, have to be connected also. But you could have an insight, you could have the insight, or a glimpse, as they sometimes call it, mm. into the nature of your being. But that's easiest done when you've got your eyes closed, but when you open your eyes and the world suddenly pings out there, the sense of non-duality just almost feels like it's dissolved and now you're back in the uh, me that object yeah. subject object you know that's that thing with that excerpt from um, Berg's book um, The Flavour of Liberation yeah um, where it's this you, when you when you meditate you would go into the gap of all this arising and passing and then he says about when you come out of it you can still keep that awareness within you know within what is here it's all arising yeah. and passing it's whether you get caught in your arising and passing or whether you sit in the gap 
Mm. And that really is like the meditative practice of being in that stillness and not being afflicted by all the things that arise and pass. Equanimity to all forms. Yeah. Upeka, the equanimous mind, as it's called. Upeka is the Buddhist term. <laughs> um, so it's like not being afflicted by all those things, and that will just let go. And you're in that, in the gap. Yeah. But I would, the feeling is the, the true resonance, how I get it. It's not of you, it's not an idea. It's yeah. something that's a felt mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. For me, that's, uh, my old self would have thought that that's not evidence. If you know what I mean, because yeah. it's so unscientific. Yeah. But the mean now, if we can call it that, um, that's the only way of verifying uh, yeah. the connection between here and there, or subject and object, and how they join together. When did this new me come? Hmm? When did the new me come? New me. <laughs> new me. <laughs> that was last year. Ah, um, right. So that was the shift. Yeah, yeah. I read something. Hmm. It was that um, Bernard Kastrup. Bernardo Kastrup. Anyway, he was a. I saw him, he did a podcast type thing with Rupert Spira, who yeah. I was already looking at. Yeah. And I thought, this guy sounds interesting. He was a scientist working for CERN, and he was given the job of trying to make a artificial consciousness. Mm-hmm. They were talking about artificial. Intelligence. intelligence already mm. and they were saying well the further we go with artificial intelligence eventually the machine will become conscious so he was looking into that and it just threw him into an understanding that that was not possible in no way could, could it ever be possible uh-huh. anyway so he, he turned into a kind of uh, philosopher teacher um, oh, I see, yeah. And he started writing books. And there was one passage in a book where he was describing what uh, consciousness would be like without objects, but also how that would relate to the world of objects, how the, the kind of crystallization of consciousness could be seen as objects, uh, depending on which bit of yourself you believe you're looking at it from. So anyway, that gave me the ping. <laughs> and I thought, ah, because not only did I read it, you but felt I, it. Yeah. Whoa. And I thought, oh yeah, well obviously. Mm. And then you go, oh, oh yeah, that was always, always, always there. Mm. But I just didn't um, let it uh, in. Well, no, because it could not be in. But I just didn't. Yeah, yeah. Didn't give it any any importance because. Uh, for a thinking mind that's that's a negative thing as in it's a non-object so therefore it doesn't exist for a thinking mind yeah so that's what kind of what happened and then from there I asked some questions of another friend and he gave me some pointers and then that was when I looked for an edge of consciousness and couldn't find it right and that for me was 
truth.